Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for women living with advanced ovarian cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about therapeutic radiology and new research in the field with Dr. Ranjit Bindra. Dr. Bindra is an associate professor of therapeutic radiology at Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. So therapeutic radiology, as I understand it, this would be like uh, what we might call radiation oncology or radiation therapy, I think we used to say in the old days? Yep, exactly. So one of the classical uh, names for our field was therapeutic radiology. In more modern times, you often hear it referred to as radiation oncology. Okay, so, but you're in an old-fashioned department that likes to use the old names, is that right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Gotcha. We like to keep it real. K- keep it traditional. <laughs> exactly. Right, and you really work with uh, some of these really new toys that are ultra-focused, right? Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. I'd say over the last 10 to 15 years, our field has changed in many, many ways. We can now deliver ultra-precise uh, doses to very, very small regions, delicate regions in the brain, uh, and it's it's really exciting to be able to do this because uh, we can treat tumors that previously uh, were really thought to be untreatable. And some people call this surgery, right? Like radiation surgery or something like that? Yep. Some of our treatment involves what we call radio surgery, which is essentially a non-invasive way of uh, treating tumors without knives. Yeah. Could, could you explain how that works if, the, if you could make it simple for our um you know, our listening public? Yeah. So often what I tell patients, for instance, who have a brain metastases, who are about to undergo a treatment at Yale uh, that we do called gamma knife radiosurgery, I think of it as taking a magnifying glass and shining it on a leaf. To be more specific, if you can think of 200 beams all focused on a single point less than the head of a pin almost, we can do that um, with our gamma knife radiosurgery and treat tumors that are very close to delicate structures such as the brainstem or the optic nerves. Hmm. You're reminding me of the uh, Death Star in Star Wars. That's a pretty good example. I think that uh, very high-tech and ultra-focused. I see, um, which is kind of scary if I were a patient, I suppose, but I, but I would trust you. Well, it's really well I would have to that. trust you, right? Yeah, we, we find that a lot of patients find, uh, find the name to be very scary when they actually see the instrument and see the team. Um, it's not that scary at all. And does it look like a basic scanner, like a CAT scanner? Or? It sort of looks like uh, if you've ever uh, been to a hair salon and someone's getting their hair dried and you see that uh, helmet that gets on top of the old-fashioned ladies hair dryers with exactly. the curlers exactly it sort of looks like that so they you put that thing over their head uh, we put that thing over the head and our neurosurgeon actually affixes a stereotactic frame that actually reads out the XYZ coordinates with very, very high precision uh, less than a millimeter of uncertainty uh, that allows us to treat um, these tumors in the brain Wow that's really crazy I would say I mean it, that my that's my response so do you 
so the neurosurgeons they they put in this framework that that's like surgery they use screws or something to do that or exactly it's uh, four pins that uh, uh, are affixed just to the outer table of the skull uh, it allows us to then uh, take an MRI with that um, frame in place that gives us the XYZ coordinates and then uh, we can simply point to where we want to treat and the machine will uh, direct its beams uh, to that location but it's a little more complicated isn't it than like if you were doing a video game and you just like you know took your mouse and circled it and said go zap it right exactly there's uh, behind the sort of front interface there's a lot of uh, complexities we have a team of physicists uh, the radiation oncologists uh, the actual instrument itself uh, has a great deal of complexity regarding the software to make sure that they can align everything perfectly. Well, that's a relief, really. You know, I, I didn't like the idea of your technologist sitting there, or you even, Ranjit, sitting there with a mouse and just saying, "Okay, zap." You know me too well. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> that, that could that could be a problem. Um, now, do you treat uh, mainly? Uh, you said metastatic cancers. That would be something like a a breast or lung cancer that had spread to the brain? Yeah, so with radiosurgery, we treat uh, uh, primarily brain metastases, but we also treat a variety of benign uh, tumors as well. The majority of my fo practice is actually focused on adult and pediatric brain tumors. They're primary brain tumors. We refer to these as gliomas. Okay. And Aren't those often treated with surgery? So they're, this day and age, these tumors are treated with uh, a diverse range of modalities. Almost all patients will get uh, surgery followed by uh, post-operative radiation therapy, often combined with chemotherapy, and then followed by uh, systemic therapies as well. Whew. So this would be one of these multidisciplinary team kind of things. Exactly. Again, another example of how things have really changed in the last 10 years and how we manage these tumors. Mm -hmm. So do most... Uh, people with brain cancer end up receiving several of those modalities? I'd say about 70 to 80 percent of the patients, both the in the adult realm and uh, the pediatric space as well, uh, receive this treatment. Gotcha. So, you know, I, we're here to talk a little bit about uh, research in uh, the treatment of cancer, and I'm just wondering how one laboratory, or maybe it's not like that, can can model this kind of multidisciplinary stuff. I mean, you're trained as this kind of beam shooter guy, but that's not all you do in the laboratory, right? Yeah, that's a really great point. I think uh, over the last uh, six years that my lab's been open, I think one of the things we've realized that the only way to make progress is to develop a team-based approach, really cross-disciplinary in nature. So in our laboratory, uh, we're obviously radiation-based, uh, but we interact with the medical oncologists, the neurosurgeons, and actually even bioengineers as some of our most recent work, we're using nanoparticles to deliver some of our drugs uh, directly into the brain to treat these tumors. Hmm. So do you have like little gamma knife machines for your rodents or whatever it is you're working on? So we always joke that we have uh, the highest quality rodent standard of care radiation equipment in our department. So we uh, we indeed uh, try our best to model uh, both uh, the radiation delivery as well as the uh, actual tumors. So we have patient-derived tumors grown from patients from the OR, uh, and, uh, and we use those to uh, find the best treatments that we can uh, for our patients. Well, wait a minute. So you're taking the tumor out of the patient and you're growing it in a box or what, what are you doing? So we often will uh, have a specimen from the operating room and we'll take it and we'll uh, put it in the, in the brain of an animal. I see. So it's, it's inside a living thing. It's not like sitting there like 
throbbing like a, the blob or something in a movie. Exactly, exactly. That's a little scary. And of course, and we do it in the most humane pos- way possible. And uh, I think it's actually a very important way for us to model these treatments uh, that we're designing for patients. So you, you can grow the cells from the brain cancer of the human being inside the mouse. In, indeed. Or and rat, I suppose. Indeed, we actually do rats and mice. And it turns out that uh, modeling it in this manner uh, tends to preserve the original architecture of the tumor and better models the uh, the in vivo environment in the patient. Wow. So are these special kinds of uh, rodents or can any... Thing you catch do yeah so we use something called uh, nude rats and nude mice uh, these animals uh, do not have an immune system so that they don't reject uh, the specimens that we put in them gotcha and, the, and so then you can treat them like you would be treating the humans only on a smaller scale that's exactly the case interesting so uh, I know a lot of what you're uh, focusing on um, has to do with uh, how to make cells die better cancer cells die better. I think one of the biggest focal areas in our laboratory is how do we address the therapeutic index? This is something that I think is incredibly important. Therapeutic index. What does that mean? Oh, yeah. Sorry. We get so into this that we uh, always forget we need to define this uh, That's okay. better. So the therapeutic index uh, essentially means how do we find ways to treat the tumor while sparing the normal tissue? To minimizing side effects, really. Exactly. Now, the technology that I told you earlier, the gamma knife and all those radiosurgery technologies, they're really great at localizing our beams of energy to the tumor. We still need to find a way uh, to separate our tumor cells from our normal cells when we actually treat them with our various therapeutics. So how do you do that? So a lot of it is looking at the intrinsic tumor genetics, meaning the mutations that are found in the genome of the tumor, with the idea that it's very unlikely those mutations would be found in the normal tissue. So you find out what's different about the cancer cell and you try to capitalize on it? Exactly. We we often uh, refer to this as exploiting uh, a defect or targeting an Achilles heel. Well, and I guess it makes sense because although cancer cells may come from normal cells originally, clearly they're behaving differently. Exactly. Sort of what we like to say is there's no free lunch in the sense that for the tumor cells to acquire their characteristics to grow, they often give up other things. And we find those things and we find a way to target them. Hmm. So what's an example of something um, that uh, tumor cell gave up that you might be able to exploit? So that's a really good segue into some of uh, the research that we've been doing over the last uh, year or so. Um, so we've made a very interesting discovery that metabolites within the cell are actually overproduced in some cancers. And it appears that those cancers use that to drive tumor progression. But during the course of tumor progression, they become very bad at repairing their own DNA directly as a result of those metabolites. So let's go to this DNA repair thing. Why would a normal cell want to repair its DNA? Like, why would I have mechanisms for doing that? Yeah, that's a great question. So something I love to talk about with the trainees in my lab and whatnot is if you think about it, we have billions of base pairs in the genome, and often we have about seven hours to make a perfect copy with no errors. In parallel, the entire time, we have a number of toxic environmental agents that are threatening our genome, and the genome really is the book of life. As such, our mammalian cells or our normal cells developed a number of very, very complex, important ways to repair their DNA. 
I see. So what's the seven-hour time frame there? The seven hours is uh, what we often refer to as S phase, and it's the time when the genome duplicates itself prior to dividing into two. So if the cell is dividing and some toxic chemical in its environment has damaged the code, if it were to replicate without... Uh, without fixing itself, then the daughter cells would have some mistakes in it? Exactly. In them? In terms of tumor genesis, those mistakes often lead to cancer. Many believe that tumor cells leverage this instability to become cancer. So is this something that's happening in healthy people all the time? So believe it or not, even sitting here, we have uh, cosmic rays that are actually penetrating through actually the two to three feet of cement here above us um, that are actually damaging our genome as we speak. Whom do I sue about that? <laughs> Probably God. <laughs> we're, we're not into a theology program. We leave that to Krista Tippett uh, and on being um, in terms of the uh, metaphysics there. So, so we're exposed to things every day that damage our DNA and our cells want to fix it. Exactly. Um, assuming that they have some will. Well, that's really interesting. I, I'm going to uh, want to learn more about uh, how you're exploiting this DNA uh, damage and repair access, if you will, or a system. Uh, yep. But first, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca. The Beyond Pink campaign aims to empower metastatic breast cancer patients and their loved ones to learn more about their diagnosis and make informed decisions. Learn more at lifebeyondpink.com. This is a medical minute about melanoma. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Ranjit Bintra. We are discussing the growing field of cancer research, and <clears throat> right before the break, we were discussing this ability that cells have to fix their DNA so that they don't pass on mistakes to their children cells. Um, and Ranjit, what you were indicating to me uh, before was that uh, that cancer centers somehow, uh, cancer centers, cancer cells. Oh, also cancer centers. Yeah, exploit, somehow exploit the system uh, for their benefit. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so this is a story that really was informed by my clinical work treating uh, brain tumors like gliomas. We had noticed that when we treated certain tumors uh, in the brain that have a mutation in a gene called IDH1, which is very important for metabolism of, uh, of normal cells and cancer cells. Uh, we had found that when we treated them with radiation, uh, they were particularly sensitive as if they had a DNA repair defect. I mean, the, the, the brain cancers that had this mutation compared to brain cancers that don't were more sensitive to radiation? Exactly. Okay. Um, 
Well, that that's very interesting. I understand that this is a uh, mutation that's not uncommon in brain cancer. Yeah, it's about 70% of uh, what we call lower-grade gliomas, and that prompted us actually to go back to laboratory. We had a wonderful Fulbright uh, student, medical oncologist from uh, overseas who joined us, and over about the course of a year, uh, we decided we would model those mutations and see if we could recapitulate that sensitivity in the laboratory. So how do you do that? How do you model that? So we use something uh, called CRISPR-Cas-based gene targeting. I think back back in the day several years ago, it was quite novel. I think now everyone's doing it. I always joke that my eight-year-old daughter probably will have a science project on it soon. <laughs> well, I'm thinking of you just made me think about the old chemistry sets that I used to have. You're probably too young to have them. I oh, know I had them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now you're going to have your own CRISPR-Cas yep. uh, biology set. So this is a way of, of cutting out genes or putting in genes specifically into cells. Is that right? That is correct. It's sort of like a genome scissors. And so we uh, actually made one of the first CRISPR-Cas-based models uh, of the IDH mutation in uh, brain tumor model cell lines that's ever been reported. So does that mean you put the gene in or you took it out or what did you do? We actually inserted a single base pair mutation uh, in the genome of these brain tumor cells uh, to model the IDH mutation exactly. Okay. And you grew that tumor up in mice? Uh, we actually did something called a drug screen where we looked at dozens and dozens of DNA repair inhibitors and asked the question, were there specific DNA repair inhibitors that were sensitizing to the cells that have the IDH1 mutation? Okay, so let me just get this straight. So you've got cells uh, that have this mutation uh, growing in some kind of a Petri dish or exactly. a flask, and you're treating them uh, with chemicals uh, that you get off the shelf, basically, that you think have to have something to do with, with inhibiting this repair system? Yep, and... Uh to our surprise, we found one drug that was already FDA-approved that was highly active against the IDH uh, mutation. So this killed those cells way better than the cells that didn't have the mutation? It was actually surprising. We had to almost rerun the experiment several times because we didn't really believe it at first. And then we realized it was a consistently about a hundredfold selective cell kill um, for cells with the mutation. Uh-huh. And that was without radiation? or That was actually without radiation. Just we a did... chemical? Yep. Exactly. So you're trying to put yourself out of business. Uh, we always joke that, uh, you know, I need to make sure I do more radiation studies, but uh, we just follow the biology, we follow the data, and it was the chemical that was the most active. Have you studied the chemical with radiation? Uh, our, uh, our thoughts are that we'd like to do that in the future. We just see such exquisite sensitivity with this particular agent. We've been testing it alone, maybe in combination with some chemotherapy, but definitely radiation in the future. Huh. Interesting. So, but I, I also know that there's challenges, or there can be challenges, to delivering chemicals into brain tumors because the brain has a good way of screening out chemicals, right? Yeah, that's called the uh, blood-brain barrier, and uh, we've actually found a number of drugs in this class that are sensitive against this mutation that actually have excellent CNS penetration. So they cross the blood-brain barrier. They do, and we also have a set of drugs that don't, uh, but we're developing new methods to deliver those drugs directly into the brain, which is really exciting. Very cool. So uh, I imagine that once you had this exciting chemical in your hands um, you and you had these mice or rats that were growing these human uh, tumors, I mean, if I were you, I might have, like, tried that. I yeah. might have given the, the chemical to those 
to those rodents. Yeah, that was the next thing we did. We, uh, you know, the first thing we did is actually figure out the exact mechanism. So you should hire me, I think. <laughs> that yeah, well, we we do have an empty bench in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we we uh, figured out the mechanism of the interaction, and it was related to the DNA repair defect in these cells with the IDH1 mutation. And then you're exactly right. We uh, then tested it in animals and proved that it we could recapitulate it in in vivo. And, and again, this is just the chemical, no radiation and no chemo per uh, se. You're correct. Okay, what is the drug FDA approved for? What do you use it for usually? So this drug is called a PARP inhibitor, and it's FDA approved for uh, breast and ovarian cancers that have a specific mutation in one of two genes called BRCA1 or BRCA2. But not IDH1. Not IDH1 until now, and we're testing it in a clinical trial that's uh, just opened uh, last week. So do your uh, brain tumors that have this IDH1 also have mutations in these BRCA genes? Uh, so uh, actually, they have they have mutations only in IDH1 and or IDH2, and we would argue that they are identical to BRCA1 or BRCA2, so they're actually mutually exclusive, those mutations. In other words, if you have one, you don't need the other one because they do the same thing? Exactly, and that's really the core of our discovery, that uh, the IDH1 mutations essentially are just like having a BRCA1 or a BRCA2 gene uh, mutation, which is very, very unexpected. So you said that you opened a clinical trial uh, testing this in human beings. Yeah, this was uh, one of the most exciting things, and I really uh, credit the uh, collaborative environment at Yale for this. Um, working with the phase one team here at Yale, we were able to essentially take that discovery from our lab just about 12 months ago, and we joined together and uh, wrote a clinical trial, and um, believe it or not, we'll be treating our first patient in about four weeks. 12 months from making this observation in the laboratory to testing a drug in humans, that's really incredibly fast in my experience. It's uh, its very, very exciting. I think that it really highlights how uh, the paradigm for drug development is going to change. I think as academic centers like Yale and other places really pursue this bench-to-bedside development, I like to call it as uh, retaking control of the process and uh, putting uh, the investigators from the academic setting in the driver's seat. Well, there's a lot of great scientists also working for pharmaceutical companies. There, you know, I don't think anybody has any specific, uh, you know, license or insight. I mean, maybe you do because you're treating patients and they're not. I don't know. That is true. I, I think it's uh, more uh, more just the time to development. So from the gap between academia and pharma often can be uh, several years. And when you pursue some of these approaches, uh, we can really leapfrog in the clinic faster. Yeah, and I think that uh, one of the cool things is that you because you're very invested in this uh, thing that you've discovered uh, for very good reasons, um, and you get it vetted by your colleagues uh, to say it's not just Dr. Bindra's kind of crazy idea <laughs> that really doesn't look kind of half-baked to everybody else. Yeah. Right? But once you get that validation, you can make it a prime go-forward effort Whereas if you were in a pharma company, they might say, well, that's really interesting, Ranjit, but, you know, we've got these other things that we're planning to do that's going to, you know, that we owe our shareholders or it's just higher on the agenda, right? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, for the record, it is still a pretty crazy idea, but we're moving forward with it. I think that um, we're very excited about this interaction. So are you testing the actual drug that you discovered in the screen or, or a different drug in the same family? Yeah, so um, the original drug we developed in the uh, discovered in the screen was not CNS permeable or it didn't pass the blood-brain barrier. So uh, we essentially went out on a campaign to find one that was. And when we did, we uh, called up that company and, and 
told them that we really had some compelling data that they needed to see, and, and we asked them if they would join us on this journey to, to get this into patients as soon as possible. Hmm. And and they've agreed to do that. They have. They have. It, it's been a real interesting experience uh, overall trying to get this trial off the ground. I think, as I said, IDH mutations are um, relatively common, uh, but this discovery uh, was, you know, very unexpected, and it's taken a lot of time to get uh, the research community on board and, and to believe our work. And in one year, it sounds pretty fast to me. That's true. It could be faster in my mind. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure that's true. Nothing faster than, like, getting a, a mouse out of the cage and, and doing your experiment, right? That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so are you treating patients mainly with brain cancer, then? Uh, we are. We actually have several versions of this trial that are about to open. So what's fascinating about um, the way precision medicine is evolving is we're almost becoming tissue agnostic, where we're understanding that, well, you have tumors that look different uh, under the microscope, but uh, they might share a common mutation. So tumors from different kinds of tissues that have this mutation might behave similarly. Exactly. Well, part of our discovery was that the IDH mutation found in brain tumors, sarcomas, a disease called cholangiocarcinoma, as well as leukemias, which I know you're very well aware of, the IDH mutation, all those tumor types, appears to behave the same in that it renders sensitivity to these PARP inhibitors. So interesting. And so on your clinical trial... Um, patients with with any of those diseases, or at least the solid tumors, I guess, that, that have the uh, IDH mutations can go on? Exactly. We call this a basket trial in which we're driven really by the genomics rather than the histology or what it looks like under the microscope. And are these patients uh, who've recently been diagnosed, or are these patients who've already had treatments that have failed to work or stopped working? Yeah, so typically we focus on the recurrent patients. That's often a standard way when you have a very experimental uh, therapy. And it was interesting when, as we designed this trial, a lot of people asked, well, you know, when you slice and dice these uh, different tumor types, there's going to be subgroups upon subgroups. And, you know, they asked us, how are you actually going to accrue to this study? How are you going to get the patients uh, to run the study in an efficient and uh, feasible manner? And what's the answer to that? The answer is something that really surprised me. Uh, it's the power of social media and the extent to which the average patient is really plugged in uh, to the research community at a level that's unparalleled to what's been seen previously. At least the average affluent, highly educated patient. Uh, <laughs> uh, you'd be motivated. surprised. You'd be surprised. Friends of friends. And, you know, I've gotten, uh, you know, part of the chondrosarcoma support group on Facebook and, you know, I actually get posts that, uh, you know, call me out from uh, people from, you know, rural counties in Virginia that, you know, asked a friend of a friend that heard about a trial. And I find it very, very exciting. It's almost like the patient is empowered to a whole new level. Well, it is actually quite interesting because, you know, I think the, the, the difficult side for me is that patients will, uh, or family members will hear about something that's, you know, written in the New York Times or another newspaper uh, that has no relevance to their disease, but it's cancer. And so yeah. they, they want to know about that, and, which is fine. You know, it's good that people pay attention, but it's obviously even better if they can pay attention to the stuff that um, that's, you know, somewhere in the same ballpark, right? Yeah. No, no, no. I, I agree. I mean, I think in parallel, what we're seeing is if you, you know, if you go on Twitter and anyone out there should follow me on Twitter, at uh, Ranji.Bindra, uh, we see that the patient advocates are all on Twitter now. And it's neat because you'll see them retweeting stuff. You'll see them translating uh, things. I actually got reached out to by a patient advocate group that said, oh, well, we read your tweet and can you give us a layperson version of it and we'll retweet it. And I thought it was really interesting because, you know, 
know, you're, we're thinking about things completely differently than we used to, you know, just five or 10 years ago in the clinic. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I don't, uh, you know, I don't do Twitter myself, but I can see how things like Twitter, uh, you know, could be very powerful and, and really wonderful resources for these patient groups uh, to try to aggregate data, uh, you know, that patients otherwise wouldn't have access to. And, and their physicians their physicians probably don't either. Yeah, no, I totally agree 100%. But I, I would imagine uh, that uh, since this drug is FDA approved, it was it never studied in brain cancer before? So it's a great question. So it turns out that the PARP inhibitors were tested in a lot of gliomas, but believe it or not, they actually excluded the patients with the IDH mutation. Why would they do that? Because it turns out that the IDH mutant patients, as I mentioned earlier, respond oh. better to radiation. It's not a durable response. It does come back. So they were thought to be too good a cancer. In other words, there was already good therapy for them. Exactly. It would sort of confound the statistics by creating a heterogeneous group of responses. And so they actually excluded those patients. And we, we actually had to fight pretty hard to launch this trial because a lot of people said, well, PARP has already been tested in glioma and they don't work. And we said, well, actually, if you look at the eligibility criteria, all the patients that would have responded were actually excluded. It's a very serendipitous set of... Uh circumstances there, really. It's really fascinating. It's what I love about science. And again, you know, following the biology and just seeing where it takes you, always be surprised. Dr. Ranjit Bindra is an associate professor of therapeutic radiology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu. And past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.